Bhagavan and welcome to Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek and this is part four and the final part of my review of the John Borman script for the Lord of the Rings. This one's going to be a little bit longer because there's a lot of, to cover in this last part but it wasn't really worth splitting into two and plus I think we're all ready to be done with this. <laughs> uh, so the last time I left off with Merry and Pippin and Gandalf in the Hall of Theoden, and Gandalf takes off. And I think I said that he takes off with both Merry and Pippin. It's actually just Pippin. The script is actually a little bit fuzzy on that point, but it is, in fact, only Pippin that Gandalf is riding with. And we pick up with Gandalf riding with Pippin across what is described as a basically a dusty old battlefield. It's dusty, it's filled with bones and remains of armor and weapons and things like that, which implies that there's been some kind of battle there recently, but not so recently as to be just the other day, which begs the question, like, when did this battle happen? Okay, whatever. They're riding towards Minas Tirith, and Gandalf sees in the distance that one lone Nazgul, who is the remains of all the other Nazgul put together for some weird reason, if you remember all that, and he's also riding to Minas Tirith, and so Gandalf's in a hurry to beat him there. He gets to the gate of Minas Tirith first, and we also get this little scene where Denethor is inside, and some of the guards tell him that that somebody's coming, and he's like, is it Boromir? No, it's just Gandalf. Now, the thing about Denethor here is he's described as being already kind of a half-crazed person, and what makes it worse, he's carrying in his hands, or kind of holding in his lap, a crown. The crown is also attached to his belt via what can really only be described as like a leash or a tether. Uh, and you really have to wonder what's going on there, because he's not the king. He's never described as the king. So why is he carrying around this crown is really not clear. At any rate, Gandalf arrives at the gate, and Denethor goes down to meet him. Gandalf, you know, of course, wants in. He's trying to get in before the, the Nazgul gets there and cuts him off or attacks. And Denethor is, he doesn't say, I'm not going to let you in, but he basically engages in conversation in a tone which indicates, I'm not letting you in. <laughs> because Denethor is half-crazed already in this one. He accuses Gandalf of stealing Boromir, which makes no sense in this script. Um, I mean, it it made some sense to say that he stole Faramir in the original version of The Lord of the Rings, obviously, because Faramir had a tremendous liking for Gandalf, more so than Boromir did, and respected Gandalf in ways that he may, may not have respected Denethor. Here, we don't know that Boromir ever knew who Gandalf was or had any connection with Gandalf other than happening to be in the company of the ring. And so, we're just left to ponder, what does he mean by this? But then again, Denethor is already half crazy, so maybe it means nothing. At any rate, Gandalf uses the idea of Boromir as a ploy and tells Pippin, why don't you tell Denethor about how Boromir died? and hoping this will get Denethor to let him in, Pippin starts off really rocky, and just, I'm not going to go into detail on it, but I mean, it's just totally not the way you would approach that conversation at all. And Gandalf is, of course, really impatient like, you idiot. Denethor 
wants to hear more after Gandalf kind of interrupts. And Gandalf says, well, if you let us in, he'll tell you everything. And, of course, it's a cheap tactic, and Denethor recognizes it as such. Nevertheless, he lets Gandalf in and, you know, basically says, I know this is a cheap trick, but whatever, I just really want to hear it. Around the same time, the Nazgul comes to a stop within a fairly short distance of Gandalf and the gate, and we see that his horse has no skin on it, which is a little creepy and kind of unnecessarily weird, but whatever. Uh, the dust trail behind the Nazgul, remember we're on a dusty battlefield, uh, begins to settle, and he says, come not between the Nazgul and his prey. It's not really clear what he means by that. Does he Is he telling Gandalf not to come between him and Minas Tirith? Is he telling the people of Minas Tirith not to let Gandalf in? It's really not clear what's going on there. At any rate, the dust behind him settles enough, and then we see that there's this giant army of orcs behind the dust cloud that nobody could see before, because apparently the field is that dusty, guys. Uh, and they all charge the city. The men in Minas Tirith are opening the gate via what is basically a giant hamster wheel. Yep. And it takes quite a while for it to open, and so Gandalf finally gets in, and then they start to try to close it again, but they're not quick enough to do so before some of the orcs make it into the city, and a battle starts inside the city. The orcs try to get onto the hamster wheel to open the gate back up again to let the entire army in, and a fight evolves around that. Eventually, Gandalf manages to get the gate shut by having Shadowfax rear up and knock the gate down so hard that it just spins it all the way back to shut, but there's still some orcs in that they have to fight. While that battle is going on, Denethor has taken Pippin up to the battlements and is asking him for more information about Boromir. Pippin takes this opportunity, which is a really strange opportunity, to offer him his sword and his service. Denethor accepts, and then he takes Pippin's sword and chucks it over the battlement and <laughs> says... All I want is for you to tell me more about Boromir, which, at any rate, it, it's just it's just weird how it all goes down. It's it, again, you can sense the time compression is kind of being used as an excuse to just do some of the strangest storytelling here. Gandalf interrupts the conversation of Denethor and Pippin and tells Denethor, hey, the first circle of the city is burning because archers have started to shoot flaming arrows into the city at this point. Denethor is already to the point of, eh, whatever, we're all going to die anyway, and is basically just resigned to defeat. He accuses Gandalf of wanting to rule in his stead, which is kind of like the whole you stole Boromir from the thing. It's like, where did that come from? Why? There's no explanation of this, why he thinks this, other than he's just already crazy. Gandalf takes command, of course, at this point, because Denethor's not doing anything. The orcs bring up a battering ram, which doesn't get named as Grond. There's no special anything about it. It's just a battering ram. They bring it up and start beating on the walls, and as they're doing so, Denethor 
begins to convulse in time with the beating of the door, which we're going to see some more stuff like that later with Denethor, and it's just bizarre. But the ram does break the gate down, and orcs start to pour in. So we just kind of skip right to the, the climactic fight of Minas Tirith really, really quick here. Now we return to Sam sitting in the... I guess, basement of whatever tower we're in. Again, it's never really named. It's not really clear which tower we're in. It'll become a little clearer later, and it's still not very clear. Uh, But remember, he was sitting below what is described as a grill or some kind of grate that was dropped above him. It's not a a standing gate. It's just a, a, a grill that was lowered above his head and locked. He hears orcs coming down, and they're approaching the grill, so he puts the ring on, and when that happens, the orcs nearby start to convulse as if in agony and do all kinds of weird things, even beating their own heads on the floor. And somewhere in the mess, the grill opens and he climbs up, and then he sees that other orcs around are having similar reactions. Anybody that's really close to him just reacts horribly, People that are farther away, the orcs react a little less strangely, but they still seem uncomfortable, and they tend to be looking in his direction, but as if they can't see him. So the ring does very strange things to orcs in this movie. And he starts looking around, and he sees that there's a winding, not staircase, but ramp going up the inside wall of the tower. Then he looks further up towards the very top of the tower and he sees a light growing which seems to be basically the eye of Sauron looking for him and he realizes that he's about to be spotted and he hides under a giant pile of shields for some reason and as he's there he decides that he better take the ring off because he's starting to feel really not so great, and in fact, he takes off the ring and then he passes out. But as a result of all this and the fact that Sauron or somebody is now aware of him, he starts, well, not he, the the orcs start a search party to actually look for Sam. So they're aware that somebody is in the tower and they're looking for him, and he's passed out under the pile of shields. He's not even conscious anymore. Now we return to Minas Tirith while the battle is raging, And Denethor and Pippin are now in the inner circle of the city, leisurely strolling, as the script tells us. And Pippin is dressed, of all things, in a jester's outfit. Yes, that's what I said. And the jester's outfit is filled with arrow holes and bloodstains. And Denethor is explaining that his prior jester died fighting side by side with him. And that Denethor now no longer believes in slaying, but only in being slain, which makes you wonder why he retreated to the inner circle of the city. I don't know. It doesn't make any flippin' sense, but hey, here we are. And as he's going on and on about this, he then asks Pippin, well, how did Boromir fare with Galadriel? Which is another weird thing to ask. I, I, I guess we're supposed to assume that Pippin already told him enough to get to the point of they made it to Galadriel, uh, how Denethor knew, knows who she is or whatever is, of course, very unclear. Uh, and of course, that question, how did he fare with her, is 
Um, well, Pippin's answer tells us what what Denethor means because Pippin says, "Well, I think," and he kind of does this in in an oblique way. He doesn't go into the direct answer, of course, because he doesn't want to upset Denethor more. He just says, "I think she chose a halfling instead." <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, And Denethor, in response, laughs in madness and despair, which I I don't know what we're supposed to assume that Denethor was expecting. Why am I talking more about this? We need to leave Galadriel behind as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, of course, Gandalf is helping fight off the orcs, and he comes up, and he's panting and breathless. And Denethor looks at him and says... Basically, the ring has been found, and sending it with a witless halfling into Mordor was a stupid idea. You should have given it to Boromir. And Gandalf says, don't tempt me with madness, which... This is one of the stranger pieces of dialogue. What do you mean, tempt me with madness? Like, I'm not exactly sure what is meant here. Maybe Gandalf is saying, you know, that would have been a tempting option, but it would have resulted in madness? I, I don't know. Maybe he's saying... You know, maybe it has turned out really badly and it's all my fault, but don't try to convince me of that because that'll make me cry. I don't know. It it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Denethor and Gandalf enter a staring contest at this point, which at least is reminiscent of the kind of staring contest they have in the book in a couple of points. But it's, you know, it's you don't get anything like the significance of it in the script. And as they're doing this, Pippin hears a cockcrow in the background. And he, you know, it's like, what's that? And even Gandalf is, in the script, kind of dismissive of it. Eh, it's like, no big deal. But then there's a horn in the background, and Gandalf's like, oh, Rohan has come. Denethor, of course, doesn't care. <laughs> but, of course, Rohan has come. The riders are there. The... Citizens inside Minas Tirith, of course, are really happy about this. The riders begin to attack, and the orcs start to flee. And when I say citizens, by the way, I mean that in the most literal sense. The people in Minas Tirith start to fight back, not just soldiers, but also just the regular people in the city, including housewives who have made makeshift armor out of pots and pans and yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but just just go with it. Um, the riders begin to attack, and one of the strangest things in this entire script happens here, and I know that's saying a lot, but believe me, what happens is the riders get up to where the orcs are, they dismount, and they have their horses turn around and walk backwards, because apparently there's a bunch of armor on the back of the horses, and they have the horses walk backwards and just kick at the orcs. Yeah, um, I I have nothing more to say about that. Theoden, for whatever reason, is still on his horse, however, and he's doing his part in the fight, and at one point throws his sword, because that's a really useful thing to do, throw away your primary weapon, and draws what is described as a pathetically small dagger, (laughs) and uh, is still fighting when the Nazgul decides to attack him and rides him down with a spear, knocks him off his horse with the spear in his chest. Somehow Theoden manages to land on his feet and pivot on his feet so that the spear knocks the horse out from under the Nazgul and then he falls down 
and of course he's, you know, at this point incapable of fighting anymore, the Nazgul is going to come over there and kill him when a rider with Mary on the horse rides up. And of course we all know who this is, but it's not stated in the script because it's leaving us in suspense on this point. But anyway, the rider comes up and says, be gone, foul lord of Carrion, but there's really no further conversation beyond that one line. The Nazgul goes in to fight, and Mary rushes in, tries to attack the Nazgul. The Nazgul cuts him on the thigh, but Mary gets behind and stabs him in the knee. And then the rider, of course, finishes off the Nazgul, who then collapses and, like, deflates and the armor falls apart and the Nazgul is dead. Now the rider did take a blow in in the fight and so she, she, I mean we know it's a she but it's not stated she's a she at this point either, falls down and she and Mary both kind of pass out. Mary then wakes up a little bit later and walks over and finds out that it's Eowyn because he pulls the helmet off and then it says that he begins to undress her for goodness knows what reason. And it's not really specified exactly to what extent he does it either. And I'll just leave it there. But it there is a reference to her beautiful body. Yeah, uh, we're doing this again, aren't we? Uh, so anyway, leaving that behind. Mary, upon realizing who it is, basically ends up crying and then fainting again. And during all this mess, Gandalf, Denethor, and Pippin have come out of the city since they have repelled all the orcs and come on the scene with Theoden, Merry, and Eowyn. And they see them all there, and Denethor, being his crazy pessimistic self, says something along the lines of, they're all going to become wraiths. <laughs> Which I don't even... Denethor's so crazy in this one, it's ridiculous. Uh, but anyway... After saying this, Denethor then just collapses to the ground and kind of convulses as if he's dying, in the process of dying, next to Theoden. By the way, Denethor has been dragging his crown on the leash behind him this whole time. It's still attached and he's not even holding it. It's just dragging behind him in the dirt. Mary wakes up and Pippin goes over and they have a conversation and Mary says... Pippin, I'm a hero, and Pippin says, and I'm a jester, and Mary says, well, in the Shire, they're, you know, pretty much equal, so, you know, we're all good. <laughs> ah, some of this is just really awful writing, and in the middle of this conversation, there's more orcs that arrive, and so the defenders begin to retreat back to Minas Tirith again. Unfortunately, the defenders are kind of in a rout at this point, and they all rush to the gates a little too fast while Gandalf is trying to impose order, but they can't all get in in time, and so they end up being crushed up against the wall by all the attacking orcs. Eomer comes to where Theoden is. Theoden has just enough life in him to give his crown to Eomer, who, remember, is Theoden's son in this version, not his nephew. <laughs> uh, and so now he's been crowned king, Denethor, meanwhile, is still acting as if he's in the throes of death right next to Theoden as well, which is just so loony. And Mary asks Pippin to help him remember what death is like in the Shire. And I get the sense here that they're kind of going for a similar conversation to what Frodo and Sam have when Frodo says, you know, I can't remember the taste of strawberries, I can't remember the feeling of wind on my face, you know, and all that, and it's just, here it's so out of place, it's like, 
Mary is wounded and he's, but it's not like he's been, I don't know. It just, it's weird. Why transplant that conversation here? At any rate, we move on from that, and the next thing we know, we see in the distance what appears to be a giant snake coming into the battlefield, and it, the way it's written kind of makes me wonder if this is supposed to be an echo of the the banner bearer that Theoden kills in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, who was one of the leaders of the Haradrim, or a banner bearer for the leader of the Haradrim, you know, the black serpent on the red background. Uh, but anyway, the arrival of this giant snake, which in itself seems kind of strange, causes further, you know, panic and retreat among the good guys, and the orcs are now, you know, really happy thing, and they're about to just completely win the battle. Aomir rallies his riders against the snake, but the orcs slow down his charge. But then the snake breaks up, and it turns out it was a bunch of warriors carrying painted shields, and they start to attack the orcs, and they've got a banner, which is a white banner with a tree on it. So we know who this is. It doesn't say it at this point. It shifts scenes. But also, why change the color of the banner? It's supposed to be a black banner with a white tree. Here it's a white banner with a undescribed tree. So what was the point of that? But at any rate, like I said, scene shifts. We find Sam under the pile of shields, and he wakes up just in time as orcs are beginning to move the shields that are on top of him. And so he's getting ready to put the ring back on when a shield gets picked up above him and he's visible, and he just holds the ring at the orc that picked it up, which sends the orc into basically the same exact kind of reaction that was caused earlier when he actually put the ring on but it just apparently has a smaller range of influence when he's not wearing it i don't know it's it's just weird uh anyway this particular orc swings around in his convulsion and hits another orc in the face and then that starts a fight which of course is reminiscent of the whole fight at the tower of Carathungal, but it doesn't wipe out all the orcs in the tower of course because that would be too too similar to the original story. Uh, but anyway, he uses the distraction to make it over to the ramp that is going around the inner wall of the tower and starts to climb it in the hopes of finding Frodo. He climbs and he's not using the ring. He's, you know, just using stealth to hide out. And he eventually comes to this door which is guarded and seems pretty important. So he wants to get in there. He thinks maybe that's where Frodo is, but he's trying to figure out how he's going to do it. And at some point, a group of orcs carrying some armor, troll armor is the way it's described, walk by. And he kind of ducks under the troll armor as they walk by and walks under that to try to get up to the door and inside. And then down the ramp coming the other way is a couple of orcs with a hooded and cloaked figure. And the orcs are carrying the helmet of the Nazgul. It's not really clear if this means the helmet of the Nazgul that Eowyn just killed at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, or if it's just a helmet that looks like a Nazgul helmet, which could have been from one of the nine that was turned into one way back. I It doesn't say, so I don't know, and I'm not going to try to figure it out, because there's no logic to this script. At any rate, he sees these people coming down, and when they come to the door, he sees that the hooded and cloaked figure is unmistakably Gandalf, which you could probably guess what that means in this context, but it doesn't say anything here. 
Sam comes out thinking that it actually is Gandalf, pops out and reveals himself and recognizes after the fact, oh, wait a minute, I just kind of gave myself away. And he, the orcs spot him and they try to get him, but he ducks and avoids him and gets under the faux Gandalf's cloak and hides there. How he manages this, I'm not confident that the people animating this could have figured out a way to make it believable, but it's what the script says, so we're going with it. They enter the room and find basically that it's a torture chamber and Frodo is lying naked on a table and the orcs with the Nazgul helmet go over and put it on his face and it apparently, for whatever reason, is tight enough to force his eyes open. I'm not sure exactly what the point of that is, and I'm also not sure why a Nazgul helmet, which in theory ought to be big enough for an actual man-sized person, would be so small as to be tight on a hobbit's head. Leaving logic aside, since it doesn't matter, the Gandalf figure is searching through Frodo's clothes, doesn't find what he's looking for, and then leaves while the orcs continue to tighten the helmet. Now we shift back to the Battle of the Pelennor Fields again, and we see Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli fighting alongside an army of the dead, the elves, and the dwarves that they gathered in the last part that I discussed, which is just weird on so many levels. But at any rate, Aragorn meets Eomer in the middle of the battle, and he kneels to Eomer because Eomer is now wearing the, the crown because he's been crowned by Theoden. And in the city, the people of Minas Tirith are cheering for Aragorn the Mighty Ranger, which begs the question, how did they find out that this was Aragorn? How do they know he's a ranger? What the heck do they know about any of this? Logic doesn't matter. Aragorn and company enter the city, and Gandalf comes to meet him and says that they meet under the banner of his ancestors. And I think, I'm pretty sure, this is the first time in the entire script that we get any indication that Aragorn might have actually been descended from the line of kings. You may remember way back in early part two of this series, or maybe close to, yeah, it was early in part two of this series that I talked about how Aragorn and Boromir were fighting over the sword, and Aragorn was saying it has to be delivered to the rightful king who will reforge it. There's been no indication that that's Aragorn that I can remember in any of this script. So this is the first time we even get a hint of that. Where it came from? Out of nowhere, because time compression, I guess. Pippin takes this really awkward moment to make a joke about Gandalf's fireworks for reasons. I think Borman just thought that Pippin was literally there to be the dumbest character in the world. I mean, I don't even see that most of what he does is humor in this story, but, you know, maybe in an actual visual adaptation, not reading it on a script. It might have been a little funnier, but ugh, it's bad. At any rate, uh, he then takes Aragorn to Merry, and Aragorn comes to Merry. He takes the two halves of the sword that's broken, and by the way, it's never named in the script. I keep calling it Narsil and stuff, but it's never actually named. He stabs him into the ground, which makes all kinds of no sense, and then he starts calling to Mary, who then stirs. Denethor, who is nearby, says something about the hands of the healer being the hands of a king, or maybe he says it the other way around. He basically repeats that whole line. And this, of course, now we're getting really strong hints that Aragorn is, of course, going to be the king. 
Gandalf begins to quote Bilbo's rhyme about all that is gold does not glitter, and Aragorn turns to Denethor, who says that he and Boromir were blood brothers, which again goes back to that same scene, if you remember, with Arwen doing weird things with blood, and yeah, I, let's not even think about that too much. He goes to embrace Denethor, which I guess is like, you know, if he's my blood brother, then you're my blood father, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, he goes to embrace him, and Denethor pulls a dagger. But he doesn't pull a dagger on Aragorn. He pulls a dagger and points at his own chest, so when Aragorn embraces him, it stabs him through the heart, and therefore Denethor dies. So, really interesting change to his suicide. Aragorn then moves on to Eowyn, who, by the way, no one has done anything with since Mary discovered who she was. They've just kind of left her there. Even though she's not dead, she's just wounded. And he goes over to her and he basically lies down on her in mirror image so that his arm is on her arm and all this kind of stuff. And she starts stirring a little bit and he stands her up with him and she's waking up and he kisses her and then she faints again and then he kisses her, quote, passionately, unquote. Uh... (laughs) Why he does this is really unclear. Remember, this is the first time in this script he's ever seen her. Of course, it's also not clear in what state of undress he's seeing her, but maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. In the background, Gandalf is taking the white banner with the tree, and he's dipping it in Denethor's blood after folding it, which seems like a really strange thing to do, but it's kind of explained in a second here, because Eowyn wakes up and looks at Aragorn with this you know, loving look in her eyes, and then Gandalf comes over with the banner and spreads it out over them, and the blood has apparently soaked into the banner in just such a way, thanks to the way that he folded it, that it makes it look like the tree is blossoming. So that's, uh, okay, sure, Gandalf is really clever with tie-dye, I guess. Gandalf then repeats what Denethor said about the hands of a king being the hands of a healer, And the people proclaim Aragorn king and Eowyn queen, because obviously he's not going to marry teenage Arwen, right? And Gandalf then finishes Bilbo's rhyme, and the sword, which remember is in the ground, because Aragorn likes to treat his really nice heirloom sword really badly by sticking it in dirt, begins to glow, and Aragorn picks it up and holds it over himself, and then it magically fuses itself back together. So, confirmation, Aragorn is the proper king, and yay, we're all happy now. But Aragorn then suddenly remembers, where's Frodo? And of course, I read this line, and I'm just sitting here thinking, you saw him walk off by himself and chose not to go after him, so why are you surprised that he's not here, and why are you suddenly worried about it? I mean, it's one thing to stop and say, okay, do we know where Frodo is? But to act like it's just an absolute horror that Frodo isn't here and that we don't know exactly where he is seems a little odd in this script. Anyway, the scene, of course, naturally shifts back to Sam at this point. Sam, of course, kills the orc who is fastening the Nazgul helmet to his head and takes the helmet off. Frodo doesn't seem to recognize Sam and is mumbling something about the ring for the master, which presumably means he's talking about Sauron there. And he just is out of it 
in whatever weird kind of way. Sam hugs him and he finally comes to himself. And then Sam grabs Sting and looks toward the door. Then we shift back to Minas Tirith again. Interestingly enough, Minas Tirith is still under siege. They did not drive off the armies. And we see this scene where Merry and Pippin are talking, and one of them says that even Sauron would fear Aragorn now. And Gandalf gives him a sharp look, like, you know not of what you speak. But then he goes on and muses about how they can maybe fool Sauron. And then we shift back again to Frodo and Sam. They're gathering up some orc clothes, and in the process of doing this, Frodo realizes that he doesn't have the ring. He, of course, panics and thinks that the quest is ended. Sam reveals that, of course, he has the ring. Frodo has his episode of, give me the ring, just like he does in the book, which, you know, it's a little truncated, of course, and gets over it. And then as they're, you know, kind of planning their escape, Sam says the ring is their only way out, and Frodo nods. So they're clearly contemplating using the ring to get out of the tower, which of course would be the most horrible idea ever, and very contrary to the whole point of the book. But, you know, the ring is really weird in this story, so we'll see how that goes. But back to Aragorn and company at Minas Tirith. Here we get another of the strangest things that was done in this script, and it could have been solved so easily by just not having the siege continue and having the armies of Mordor driven off the plan that apparently Gandalf came up with is they're going to go attack the Black Gate, sure enough. How are they going to get there when they're already under siege? Well, you see, horses which can magically back up and kick orcs with their armored behinds are also magic barriers because Eomer and his riders basically ride in a circle. They go out the gate and the, the riders are riding in a circle around Aragorn and a bunch of the other elite warriors of Gondor. And just by riding in a circle around them, they're keeping the orcs off. And the orcs are apparently just like, hey, what do we do? I don't know. And in this manner, the heroes progress their way towards the Black Gate of Mordor, which that would be a really slow going and for the horses a very exhausting way to travel any significant distance. But again, logic just doesn't matter in this script. Frodo and Sam are, meanwhile, waiting for an opportunity to get out of this room. Some orcs open up the door and walk in, and they ambush them and kick them in long enough to get out and then bolt the door behind them so that the orcs are trapped. But there are more orcs outside who spot them, so Sam tells Frodo... Put on the ring. Frodo gets out the ring and tries to put it on, but he fumbles and drops it. He goes to grab it, but goes over the edge and falls over the edge of the ramp down a stalact... I'm never sure if it's stalagmite or stalactite that goes down, but whichever it is, Frodo falls down and is grabbing it, kind of sliding down, still trying to put on the ring and not doing a great job of it. And he manages not to put the ring on and ultimately slides all the way off the stalagmite and then Sam also manages to fall off the edge after right about the same time that Frodo slips off the end of stalactite I don't know whichever then we go back to Aragorn and company who have reached the black gate meanwhile still being surrounded by orcs so apparently They've just been surrounded by a massive army of orcs this whole time, and nobody's even bothered to try to stop them, which is genius. 
Gandalf announces Aragorn as Aragorn the Arrogant, which... I mean, I realize it almost rhymes, but really? Why? Out of the Black Gate comes a chariot, and in the chariot is a figure who looks exactly like Gandalf, except he's wearing a shimmering, many-colored coat. And if you can't figure out who this is by now, then you're a little slow on the uptake, maybe, but that's okay. Not nearly as slow on the uptake as some of the writers of this script. Of course, the figure announces himself as the mouth of Sauron, and Gandalf then replies something to the effect of, Have you forgotten even your own name? Is that what the magic of Sauron has done to you? Uh, so again, we're getting really strong hints here, and I'm not going to spoil the surprise if you haven't figured it out yet, although I'm sure you have. But at any rate, whoever this person is comes down, and he's got a staff in his hand, and on the staff is a snake. And the snake, in, in full view of everybody, and this is intentional, bites the person on the hand, but the snake is the one that dies. Somewhere in this, of course, we get the fact that this is Saruman. And remember, the only thing we've seen of Saruman was back in the Kabuki play in Rivendell when they were kind of explaining the history of the ring, and we saw that the play Gandalf and the play Saruman were fighting over the ring or something, and whatever that weirdness was. Anyway, after the snake dies from biting Saruman, Gandalf says that I will be the snake, and Saruman says, well, I am the staff that crushes the snake, and Gandalf says, well, I am the fire that burns the staff, and they go on like this for a couple rounds, and it's just so pointless, but at some point, Gandalf gives a line, and Saruman doesn't really have a pithy, witty reply, and he kind of hesitates and fumbles and says, ah, this is just word games. This is so not like what Saruman is really supposed to be like in the story, but, you know... What else is? Saruman gives the whole line about it takes more to make a king, blah, blah, blah. Aragorn, in response, just kind of shifts a little bit so that the blade ref- the blade of his sword reflects light into Saruman's eyes, which seems like such a childish, like, playground-level thing to do. But Gandalf then kind of goes into something and implies that Aragorn has the ring. Saruman says, I spit on your ring-bearer as if there's no real threat there. Then Wormtongue, how he got here, we'll never know, descends from the chariot with what is essentially an effigy of Frodo dressed in Frodo's clothes. And this is kind of the whole, hey, look, we've caught your guy moment. And Gandalf feigns that Frodo was just some spy they sent off to do whatever. It acts like it's not really that big of a deal. Saruman begins to gloat, but then he, like, stops and starts to stutter and he looks back towards the tower. And here we start to get a whole lot of really, really quick back-and-forth interlacing, which is too too detailed for me to do in that in as much detail as they do. So I'm just going to kind of do more at one time on one side than the other, but get the idea here that it's going back and forth between Frodo and Sam and the rest of them really fast here. At any rate, Saruman looks back towards the tower as if something is going on, Gandalf looks at Aragorn and is like, do we dare hope? And of course what he means is, do we dare hope that Frodo is on his way to accomplishing his mission? Gandalf holds back all of the heroes from launching an actual attack, but Legolas and Gimli spring forward and take the effigy from Wormtongue, and they start using it basically as a banner for their side, which is a little strange. Saruman, meanwhile, has fallen to his knees and is acting more or less like he's having a stroke. Now let's cover a little bit of Frodo and Sam. 
So you may remember that both Frodo and Sam had fallen off. Sam we find lying on top of a stalagmite, stalactite, whichever one comes from the bottom up, uh, and is pretending to have been impaled so that the orcs aren't worried about him so much. And he sees that they're all crashing around looking for Frodo, and he realizes that Frodo must have actually managed to put the ring on at the last second. So he gets down and tries to look for Frodo in the midst of all the chaos, and at this point he starts seeing the light from the eye of Sauron basically come down from above again, and he says basically to Frodo, although he can't see him, you need to take off the ring. Frodo then reappears at his side, clawing at his own skin like he's in agony, and just kind of collapses. The orcs, of course, now are free of their whatever, and start to come at him again, and Sam takes the ring on its chain and starts swinging it around in their faces to keep them back as much as he can. And this works for a little while, but they keep getting closer and closer, and eventually... It's getting to the point where he knows that they're going to attack him, and so he just takes the ring and puts it on, which restarts the chaos. Frodo, meanwhile, tries to ward off some of the orcs with Sting while Sam has the ring on, and then Sam eventually takes the ring off again and starts swinging it on the chain, but now Frodo, of course, being you know enamored of the ring, tries to grab it, and then Sam and Frodo start fighting over it, which for some reason sets the orcs into an even bigger frenzy, because I... I don't know, no logic. Frodo and Sam actually end up swapping who is wearing the ring several times, which seems like a really awkward thing to be able to do in the middle of A, fighting over it, and B, having to worry about orcs, but whatever. Meanwhile, the eye light from above shines down really bright, and all the orcs suddenly just get really calm and look up like they're in a trance, basically. And you get the impression that they're being commanded to do something and then they're they're just kind of downloading orders <laughs> from above frodo who was the last one to put on the ring in the light of the eye suddenly feels like his skin is burning he takes it off frodo and sam struggle to the door to get out of the tower and then suddenly the orcs attack and chase them out now we go back to aragorn legolas and gimli and company again saruman at some point in all of the you know, between who's wearing the ring and not wearing the ring, has managed to recover enough to tell the orcs to attack. Aragorn manages to hold one entire flank all by himself with the, the sword that is no longer broken and which isn't named. Gandalf is holding another entire flank all by himself, which is, I mean, whatever. Gandalf, you could kind of believe because he's a wizard. Aragorn, yeah, he's a great warrior, but one guy against hordes of, no, not, not, no. The rest of everybody else is holding the center. But they're not holding them so well that they don't have to slowly back off and, and lose ground to the orcs. So they are slowly but surely giving way. Frodo and Sam make it outside. And when they're outside, Mount Doom is basically right in front of them. So geography has been all messed up in this as well. They start to climb the, the slopes of Mount Doom while dodging orc patrols because apparently the orcs lost them somewhere after they exited the tower. It's not really explained, so I'm not going to try to do it for the script. Uh, Frodo, at some point while they're climbing, looks back and sees Minas Tirith in the distance under siege still, and also the battle that's going on in front of the, the Black Gate, and says that it's too late and, you know, they're all doomed. Sam wants him to continue and still has hope. And at some point, 
Frodo kind of looks around and says, Come out, Gollum. And you may remember that in this script, the last time we saw Gollum, he was sinking in the mire of the dead marshes and went below the surface and we never saw him again. So just keep that in mind. Sam looks around. He doesn't see Gollum, but he does hear hissing. They continue on, and of course Frodo is having a really hard time. Sam offers to carry the ring. The expected result happens. Again, kind of truncated, but... Anyway, Sam ends up carrying Frodo, and he gets some hope from seeing the Battle of the Black Gate where they're still fighting off the orcs. They start to climb. Eventually, of course, Sam has to put Frodo down, and they start to crawl. And apparently when they start to crawl, the ring drags across the rocks. It starts a bunch of rumbling, which... Again, it, the impression given is that the ring is causing this, but it's such a strange thing to happen because of the ring. But whatever, who cares about logic, right? At this point, Gollum finally attacks, and although Frodo and Sam are both exhausted, so is Gollum, so the fight is not really much of a fight. Gollum grabs at Frodo's leg, and Frodo, by the way, calls himself the Lord of the Ring again. This is at least the second time that's happened which is all kinds of messed up, but Gollum grabs his leg, Sam pulls him off the leg, and Frodo gets up and makes for the crater. There is no door. We're not going into a door into the Cracks of Doom. No, they're just going to the very top of the mountain at the crater, and that's where he's going to throw in the ring. So that's where he makes off, and then Gollum, of course, tries to fight off Sam and follow him. Frodo, of course, when he makes it to the top, does his thing where he claims the ring, and as a result of this, the eye, of course, is drawn to him, and then the fighting in front of the Black Gate stops. The orcs look back towards the mountain and suddenly start pelting off towards it as if they're going to stop it. You know, in the book, where we still had eight Nazgul on flying creatures who could speedily make their way to the mountain, it made a certain amount of sense. Here, we've got an army of orcs on foot, that are going to try to catch up to Frodo at the top of Mount Doom, which I guess maybe is just a few hundred yards away. I don't know. The geography is so messed up. But, of course, the good guys chase the orcs as well. Gollum, of course, goes up and tries to fight Frodo, but the awkward thing about this to me is, and maybe they would have found a way visually to make this work, if Frodo is just at the top on the crater, he's not trapped in, like, a cul-de-sac the way he is in the book, because in the book, there's just a path that goes into this dead end, and he's got nowhere to go. And so Gollum has an easier way of trapping him and making sure that Frodo can't get away. Here, he's just at the top of the mountain. There's a crater, but there's still, you know, a wide amount of space, theoretically, that he could run away and get away from Gollum. And how's Gollum going to find him when he's invisible? Nevertheless, Gollum manages to get him, of course, and bites the ring off, and then Gollum does his thing and falls into the crack of doom. Now, as a result, of course, the tower falls, and the tower, the fact that the tower falls and all the other stuff we got makes it kind of clear that this is the dark tower, um, but it's, obviously, a lot of things got combined there, but it was never clear that it was the tower, and still hasn't been super made clear that it's the tower, but it, it falls, of course, everybody on the battlefield throws down their weapons, including the orcs. And the dead vanish, which is weird because the dead were described earlier as being like physical beings that came up out of their grave. 
Maybe it meant they were ghosts coming up out of their grave, but that's not the impression I got from the script. Again, maybe the visual adaptation would have helped this. Anyway, the dead vanish. And the orcs, this is where it gets interesting. You remember how I said in a previous video how their weird skin was going to come up later? Well, they shed their skin here, and underneath is white slug-like skin. So yeah, that's a thing. Frodo and Sam just come down the mountain on their own and meet all the rest of the heroes at the bottom, basically. Which is, you know, the mountain doesn't explode, there's no rescue with eagles. You know, I'm not even sure there was ever any use of eagles in this story, come to think of it. I haven't been keeping track, but I don't think the eagles played into this script at all. The heroes, and even the orcs, are cheering for Frodo and calling him the Lord of the Ring, Ugh, oh my word. It's one thing for Frodo to do that in a fit of being possessed by the ring. It's another thing entirely for all the heroes to call him that after the ring has been destroyed. Absolutely horrible. Whoever wrote this had no idea about the significance of any of this stuff. Tolkien would have been disgusted. At any rate, they're all cheering him. He comes down. They take the effigy that had his stuff on it, they take the clothes off, give it back to Frodo so that he can be dressed in his normal clothes again, and then the effigy is kind of like torn apart by all the people who are trying to get little pieces of it as if it's some kind of a holy relic, and they're all shouting, Frodo lives, which is interesting at least because it's, I think it's probably kind of a reference to a phenomenon that if you read, I think it's Peter Beagle who wrote the foreword or like the little forward thing in the second edition of The Lord of the Rings where he talks about people writing things like Frodo lives on subways back before Lord of the Rings got really popular. I kind of think that may be what this, <laughs> what this is a reference to. At any rate, it's kind of an interesting little Easter egg one way or the other. It certainly doesn't have any source in the book because nobody ever says Frodo lives like a a catchphrase. Now we get another really random scene where Gimli takes his axe and walks up to the gate of Mordor, which looks like a giant frowny face, and he hacks one side of it so that half of the mouth looks like it's a smiley face. And it even says in the script that it now looks like a, a Greek tragicomedy mask, which, or face, and then just, it's so dumb. And Gimli just kind of does this nonchalantly like, hmm, that was fun. But apparently a whole bunch of people stop to admire his work and completely forget about Frodo. Which I think is supposed to be kind of echoing that whole idea that Frodo's deeds were never really appreciated in the Shire. But it does not fit well here at all. Because he literally just saved everybody two minutes ago. And the people in the Shire, at least, didn't really understand anything of what he had done. So... Putting it here, and, and it just does not work. Anyway, they all go back to Minas Tirith, and here we get another really, really strange scene. Aragorn is sitting outside with Eowyn at his side, and is perusing documents with some kind of a glass-seeing aid. And we get the idea that he's, now that he's king, he's kind of mired in the, you know, the day-to-day -day bureaucratic work of whatever it is he's going to be doing, which is so opposed to the idea of what Tolkien had in terms of what Aragorn would be like as king. 
Merry and Pippin are also next to Aragorn. Pippin is still dressed in his jester outfit, or a jester outfit. Maybe it's a new clean one. I don't know. But it's still ridiculously silly. Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and Gandalf, on the other hand, are in a different area, and they're walking by this scene, and Merry and Pippin want to get over to them, but they can't because of the crowd, and they just kind of shrug like, eh, can't get anywhere. Frodo and company just basically walk on, and I think I left out somebody. It's Frodo, Sam, Gandalf, Legolas, and Gimli. All of them are together. They see that Shadowfax is plowing the fields in the Palenor, which is so underneath his dignity, but whatever. They also pass by Saruman, who is doing sleight-of-hand tricks for orcs and men. Did I mention, by the way, I think I forgot to mention this earlier, but they all, when they were all cheering for Frodo, they also hailed Aragorn as the king of men and repented orcs. So apparently the orcs were all, I don't know, mind-co-opted and forced, I don't know. Not really clear. But anyway, apparently orcs are now living with men peacefully, and Saruman is doing sleight-of-hand tricks for him. And they come up to him, and he looks up like a sheepish grin, like, yeah, you know, what am I going to do? It's just so bizarre. Uh, but anyway, they continue on their way, and they just leave all this behind. And we get a montage of them walking through Middle-earth, and they pass by the tree where Boromir was buried earlier, and now it's seemingly revived and in bloom, which is a nice thing in honor of Boromir, I guess. Eventually, at the end of the montage, they reach a road which is leading down to the Shire. Frodo says, I can't, and then he mentions his wounds, and Sam just stops his ears because he doesn't want to hear it, and he's trying to convince Frodo to, to go down to the Shire, and a uh, we see coming up the road Sam's bugsum girlfriend, <laughs> Tolkien will be rolling over in his grave, and Sam goes down to meet her, and there's also another group of hobbits coming up to meet him as well. Frodo does not go down. He continues with Gandalf, Legolas, and Gimli off into the distance. Gandalf does toss one last firework over the hobbits as kind of a farewell gesture, I guess. Although the way it's done in the script just gives me, like, what was that for? It almost seems like a... Like, almost a wistful, but also kind of regretful thing. I don't know. It, it's just a strange way for Gandalf to leave the Shire, but whatever. They continue on, and we see some further scenery. They end up in some dunes, and Frodo sees ahead again that apparition of Arwen kind of beckoning him to, to keep going. And eventually they come to the sea. And there's a ship in which is Elrond and Galadriel and Arwen and Bilbo. And, of course, we know what's coming, but it's really weird the way we got here, right? Frodo and Gandalf board the ship while Legolas and Gimli remain behind. Legolas remarks that the last of the fair folk are leaving, which seems a strange thing to say considering he is an elf himself. Didn't mean to rhyme there, but it, it's like, what What does he mean by that? Does he mean, I don't know what he means, and I don't think any of us know what he means, and I don't think we really care at this point. And then he also compares the beach to the twilight, saying that he and Gimli are kind of stuck there in between, neither leaving nor staying. And Gimli says something about how men will need others besides just men in the days to come. And it's, it, you get the feeling that 
Borman is trying to wind down and say something kind of profound here, but it's really just kind of awkward and you're not really as clever as you think you are type writing. As the boat sails away, Legolas sees, well, Legolas and Gimli both see a rainbow appear over the ship. And Legolas says, it only has seven colors, the world is failing. And then we just see the ship sail out into the distance. And I'm just sitting here going, how, what, what kind of meaning am I supposed to derive from that? Like, we've had no indication that there's rainbows out there that have more than seven colors. Where, where is this suddenly coming from? But anyway, that is the end of the movie as written in this unbelievable madhouse of a script. So, hope you enjoyed our little jaunt through Borman's version of The Lord of the Rings. It has been a trip. Who needs acid when you have this kind of trip just from reading a dadgum script? I, it just, the absolute insanity that happens throughout this version of the story is just, oh, it's overwhelming. So that's the end of that. But it's not the only script that was ever written that didn't make it into a movie. There is another one, which I cannot get my hands on itself, but I can get some information on it, and that is the Zimmerman script that that Tolkien famously wrote a letter about to Alan and Unwin, basically giving all his problems with the script. So I'll be covering that one in the future as well, but this at least will end the Borman script. And man, was it a journey. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I have certainly gotten a few laughs out of it, although that there were certainly times that I wanted to claw my eyes out. <laughs> but uh, hopefully it wasn't too bad of an experience for you, but at least it gives you a perspective on how much worse things could be. But anyway, as usual, all my social links are in the description below. Follow me on Twitter for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my Patreon and Utreon supporters, including Ringbearers Ego Voice and Emir Ali, and Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, and Paul Leone.